Greetings, friends. Today I just want to start a, uh, a study of the epistles, actually the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy uh, with Titus sandwiched in between. I find a great lack of pastoral understanding these days of what a true shepherd, a pastor, should teach and feed his congregation. We are living in the last of the last days, and a lot of these uh, so-called shepherds have lost their way, and, and uh, we need a clear understanding of what a shepherd, from a biblical standpoint, uh, is to do, to teach, to focus on, and to really uh, understand in his own life of what his calling is really all about. As we go through these epistles, we will see the importance of directly feeding the sheep of God, leading them, going before them, being not only an example of word, but an example of deed, and of life. Doctrine is important. I believe it was C.I. Schofield that once said, correct doctrine does lead to correct living. I see a great need today for shepherds to be trained in the responsibility and the great privilege of feeding the flock and being an example to them. What is a pastor supposed to do? Is he supposed to tell stories and entertain? Is he supposed to be concerned about large numbers, concerned about finances, concerned about people's feelings? Or is he rather to be concerned about feeding the true word of God, being an example pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. I see today a great need for pastors to understand, to come back to the true biblical account of what their calling is really all about. And that's what these studies are going to be, my friends. These studies are going to be looking at the Timothy epistles, commonly called the pastoral epistles, and we're going to see what Paul so urgently declared to Timothy and, and made known to him what he should do and what he should teach. I want to start out these studies by looking at Acts chapter 20 real quick. Let me read some of these things to you and, and to let you know what a true heart of a shepherd really is. Now Paul was at the end of his life on his way to uh, Jerusalem, actually uh, ultimately Rome, where uh, his life would end. But he tells, first of all, that when he was with them, he kept nothing back from them that was profitable. But he, he proclaimed it to them, and he taught publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to the Greeks or the Gentiles, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I now go bound in the spirit of Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But listen to this. I'm in chapter 20, verse 24 now, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the mystery which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And he tells them as he's gone on in his long life of ministry, that he's not declared, to, to, but he is not shunned, I should say, to declare to them the whole counsel of God. 
Then he, he reminds them and admonishes them in verse 28 of chapter 20. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And with tears the apostles said, For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise out speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for the space of three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And he said, So now, brethren, I commend you not only to God, but to the Word of God Himself, and He will build you up and give you an inheritance of those that are sanctified. Brethren, we have a, an adversary that the Apostle Peter says that is going around like a roaring lion, waiting and looking at whom he can devour. We see the shepherds in the land losing their way, falling from their responsibilities. We see when the great danger coming in, they leave the flock, exposing them to all kinds of beasts, so to speak, of the field that will devour them. We can see this clearly in the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel talk about these things. So as we get into the book of Timothy, First and Second Timothy, we want to focus on what a true shepherd, a true pastor, uh, really ought to focus into. How is he supposed to conduct himself? How is he supposed to teach what is he supposed to teach, and what is he supposed to zero on? I think as time goes on, brethren, we're going to see that these things have waned from the church of Jesus Christ at large today. Praise God, there are remnant of churches and biblical pastors and leaders out there that follow Christ wherever he goes and feeds the flock of God, guarding them, guiding them with his life. And so with that introduction, I want to read a little bit in the first epistle of Timothy. Remember, Paul is writing these things to, to young Timothy as he wants him to remain at Ephesus to, uh, to shepherd, to oversee this, this wonderful church that has been started there. We want to learn from him and, and take heed to these important things. You know, in the last days, uh, it seemed that there was a paradigm shift to pleasing and, and entertaining the church, entertaining the sheep, instead of feeding them for their own good, instead of feeding them the word of God, which the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, that they thanked them, that they received the word not as the word of men, but it's actually as it is, the word of God, which effectively works in them who believe. Let's get into this first epistle. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edifying which is in faith. He says, Now the purpose of the commandment, verse 5, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and sincere faith, from which some, having strayed or turned aside to idle talk, they were desired to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. 
Now, brethren, before we go on, I want to dissect a little bit these first verses in, in uh, 1 Timothy. We see in verse 1 that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Let's look at this a little bit. God is described as our Savior because he is the author of man's salvation. Jesus is our hope since he is the object and embodiment of our expectation. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Our hope. Christ. He is our hope. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Looking in the New Testament where we see this being expounded, as Jesus Christ being our blessed hope, in Titus chapter 2, our living hope in 1 Peter chapter 1, our saving hope in Romans chapter 8, our glorious hope in Colossians 1, our joyful hope in Romans 5, our reasonable hope in 1 Peter 3, our purifying hope in 1 John chapter 3, and our everlasting hope in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You notice the Apostle Paul took his ministry, his calling, seriously. In fact, he took it so seriously, he said, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. He says to Timothy, verse 2, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, what's interesting is the one who studies the New Testament, we see that the title Savior is explicitly expounded on over 24 times in the New Testament. The word Lord, and expounding on Lord, Jesus used the word Lord Adonai of himself in the whole embodiment of just the New Testament alone, 522 times. You know, the one who, the shepherd, is the one that's been born again through Jesus Christ born from above, who has a living hope, a living relationship with the living God, and thus he is fit to point people to the living God. Remember, friends, he is our hope, our living hope, our saving hope, glorious hope, our joyful hope, our reasonable hope, our purifying hope, and our everlasting hope. Then verse 3 says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You know, friends, true Christian love is the natural byproduct of good, sound, biblical doctrine. Love, Jesus said, that's what all men will know, that we're his disciples, that you love one another. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. There are more and more as time goes on, brethren, if this was a paramount fact in the first century that there was others teaching, going about teaching false doctrine. How much more today? We as shepherds that are, that are teaching and mentoring and discipling those that would go out to teach themselves and to be men and women of God, we need to charge them to teach no other doctrine nor to give heed to fables, verse 4, which cause endless genealogies. 
They cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. True words of God, the whole word, the whole counsel, will always produce edification, will always produce the godly attitude of the scriptures that we must have. Look at verse 5, brethren. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Listen, this verse gives us the test of all true teaching. Does it produce these three results? Does the teaching of the shepherd that either you sit under, or we hear so much, does it of on radio, Christian television, through countless books, do their teaching produce these from a pure heart? Love from a pure heart. Does the teaching produce a good conscience? Does the teaching and the doctrine produce a sincere faith? Sincere faith is believing in the God of the Scriptures and what He has to say concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Every word of God is pure, we see in Proverbs 35. We see that they haven't done this, brethren, because they've strayed from the Word. They've turned aside to idle talk. You know, Jesus said when he was talking about the parable of the soils, remember how there was some seed that fell on the, the good soil, other seed that fell on uh, rocky, stony soil, and other seed that fell on amongst the thorns. The seed that fell on the good soil produced a crop of a hundredfold. But yet he chided the seed that fell on the rocky soil that had no depth. And soon when the scorching wind came up and, and the sun and the, and the persecution and problems of the word, they, they fled away. But yet remember the seed that fell along the thorns where the desires of other things, Mark would tell us, entering in, choked the word. Verse 7 it says that these teachers desire to be teachers of the law. But they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. One of the reasons why, brethren, they're trying to mix grace with law. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He's talking about a gospel that the Bible doesn't know about, brethren. The Bible doesn't know anything than placing one's complete and utter trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, not mixing with works, not mixing with anything but other than true biblical faith. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Amen. Christ is the believer's rule of life, not the law. These teachers in verse 7, brethren, that desire to be teachers of the law, but they can't. They don't even understand what they say nor the things which they affirm. They could not speak intelligently about the law because they did not understand the purpose of the law. And here's where we get in to really um, understanding what a shepherd of Jesus Christ, a pastor, ought to teach. Do you, my brethren, know the purpose of the law? Have you been taught why the law was there, what it does? Verse 8 says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The right use of the law, the Bible would say, is to use it in our teaching and preaching. It produces conviction of sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 3. Listen to these two scriptures 
put together. It says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Guy King wrote this, quote, The three lessons that the law teaches are, we ought, we haven't, and we can't. When the law has done its work in the life of a sinner, then that person is ready to cry out to God, Lord, save me by your grace. And until that law is understood, we will never ever realize the depth of sin and the need that we have of Jesus Christ and Him to save us. Verse 9 says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for prejurers, if there are any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law was never meant that we would keep it. Oh no, the law was given so that we would realize how far we have strayed from God. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 59 verse 2 that our iniquities have separated us between our God. They have made a separation between Him and He will not hear us because of that great separation of sin. The law came in to make us realize that we are lawbreakers. We need a Savior. And without the Savior... We're dead in sin. So the law, to be used lawfully and rightly, will always convict us to sin, will always point us to the Savior. You know, when the law was given on Mount Sinai, grace was there. Because the law convicted us of sin. And when we were convicted of sin, God provided the Lamb, an innocent substitute to take our punishment. So you see, brethren, the law is made to show somebody how far they are from God in sin, how separated they are from God in sin. What a gracious thing that God shows us our absolute need, and in His mercy shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul expounded on this again about the things of the law. He talks about Romans chapter 2. He said that, when the Gentiles, you and I, do not have the law, the written Ten Commandments, which were originally given to the Jews in the wilderness, but listen to this. When we don't have the written law, but we by nature do the things in the law, these not having law are law to themselves. In other words, why do we know it's wrong to steal? Why do we know it's wrong to commit adultery? Why do we know it's wrong to not honor our father or mother? Why do we know it's, it's wrong to lie? Uh, and all these things. Because Paul says that although we don't have the written law, we show that the law is written in our hearts. It's written on our hearts and our conscience either bears witness, either excusing or condemning us. So the law is put there to show us our great, great need. And the mercy and the grace of God is to show us his ever... There is no sin that's too big. For God, no sin that is too 
grievous that God cannot save. That, my friends, is a much-needed message today as far as the law goes. I've had many Catholics say to me, all we have to do is get back to the Ten Commandments. The Bible says, no, no, the Ten Commandments was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. We see the law and the Spirit convicts us of sin, and we immediately turn to the Savior. We see Him through the eyes of faith. He's hanging on a cross, bleeding to death, suffering the penalty of death and separation that sin caused. See, sin is realized through the law. I would not know what coveting is if the law says, Thou shalt not covet. But yet when the law came, the Bible says, I died. I died, I realized I was dead in sin and separated from God. And yet, I see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up on a cross, bleeding and dying for me. That my placing my trust in Him, the innocent substitute for the guilty one such as myself, that He took my sin upon Himself and God judged and struck the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross instead of me. He took the punishment for my sin, and by believing him by that, I am justified from all things that the law, remember, written on my heart. My conscience and everything could condemn me. I'm freed from all those things, because Christ took the judgment for me. A right understanding of the law, a right understanding of right and wrong, and why are we separated from God? Why are we sinners? How are we sinners? That's the true understanding of the law. And again, brethren, in verse 9, look at all these, these declarations. Murders of fathers, murders of mothers, unholy, profane, fornicators. That's Fornication is typically sexual relationships outside of marriage, which ultimately, that lifestyle leads to adultery, which is, which is sexual relationships within a marriage. Absolutely unfaithfulness. For sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars... For perjurers, if there are any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. You know, the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not steal. We have all know that we've stolen. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Here's a good one that got Jesus in the hot seat. He told the religious leaders who thought they were perfect that if you've ever looked for a woman to lust for, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Liars perjurers, murderers, ungodly, insubordinate, lawless. The false teacher and the false religion wants to make the law something that we can attain to. Somehow we can please God by keeping it. That's not the intent of the law. And the reason why I spend so much time on this, brethren, is that the law and the understanding of the law will give the sound pastor, the sound teacher of the word of God, grounding so that they may go forward. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that there is no other foundation that can be laid than that which is already laid, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand that we are all sinners. We've all broken God's law. We were all separated because of sin. But good news, my friend, where the law was instituted, there is always the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the only one that God was pleased with dying in your place. And he was so pleased that he raised him from the dead and proved that he is the sacrifice that he approved of for us. In verse 11 we go on, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And brethren, I can't go very far by saying that the what we need today, we need strong leaders, strong pastors that, as Paul said, I've been committed to of this glorious gospel to my trust. It's been entrusted to me. God has entrusted this blessed treasure, which the King James Version says of the Word of God, that is the, the, that is the most blessed thing. It excels all the riches of the earth, this Word. This gospel which saves, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's the gospel. And he says that it was not only committed to his trust, but look at verse 12, brethren. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me. He is the one that enables us. He is the one that puts us into the ministry, ordains us, calls us forth. And he says, not only has he enabled me, because he counted me faithful, he put me into the ministry. Brethren, being faithful to the word of God is not in word only. It is also in action, in a lifestyle, and in demonstration. We see so many today, brethren, that are falling through adultery, falling through false teaching, falling into heresy, falling into denying the Lord's people, the Jews. They're falling at an unprecedented rate. Remember, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who not only put the faithful pastor, the faithful teacher of the Word of God into the ministry, but brethren, he's looking for faithful men. Can he count you today faithful? Those that are listening to me right now, the Lord is looking for faithfulness. Are you faithful? Do you count the gospel and the blessed word of God as being committed to you for your trust or for the trust of it, the purity of it, to your trust? He's counting on good, faithful men. Paul says of himself in verse 13, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, he says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in, in, in unbelief. And insolent. Webster defies the word insolent as disrespectful of established authority. Paul, who was a Pharisee among Pharisees, he wanted to honor the God of Israel. He would never speak injuriously or blasphemy of the God of Israel, but he did of Jesus Christ, and he is humbled and he repents, thus showing his absolute understanding now of the fact that Jesus Christ is none other than God Almighty in human flesh come to die for the sins of the world. Think of it. Our Creator has now become our Redeemer, our Deliverer. God said in Isaiah 59, He says, I looked. Behold, I could find no man, so my own arm brought me salvation. My own righteousness 
it sustained me. Are we faithful? Are we going to proclaim the fact that Jesus Christ is our only hope? That the gospel is according dying for our sins? Listen to what Paul says about the gospel. He says this in no uncertain terms. He uses the rest of the God. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which you are saved. He says, I declare the first of all, what is of utmost importance, which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, period. And by this we are saved. It's Christ plus nothing. The unfaithful teacher today not only realizes, or I should say doesn't realize what the full uh, intent of the law is, but they also explain away the redemption that is only in Christ Jesus by his shed blood on the cross for us at Calvary. Today, God is looking for faithful men, men that will be, as we will see as we go on in these epistles, that will be pouring themselves into the Word of God, that are getting into the Word of God and letting the Word of God get into them. Studying to show themselves approved. Studying the Word of God, constantly going to the Word for everything in life. He says in verse 14, The grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. You know, it's grace that saves us. Mercy, God looked upon us, had mercy which opened wide the door of grace that he lavished all of his love and his forgiveness upon us in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, which is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, brethren, let's understand that Christ did not come into this world to be a good teacher, although he was. He did not come into the world to teach us morals, although he did. He did not come into the world to liberate the captives, although he did. He came into the world for one purpose and one purpose only, my brethren, and that is to save you and I. He came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I am the worst. You know, the Bible is replete with the admonition that this one will I look, Isaiah says, one who trembles at my word. What a wonderment, God seeing Jeff Graham lost and dead. And in mercy, he reached out in grace. The Spirit convicted me of sin, showed me what a sinner I am, and yet pointed me to Christ on the cross, who lived a perfect life for me, which I could not live, as my representative Yet he went to the cross and paid the debt I could never begin to pay for my sin. And he rose from the dead, and he said that if I placed my faith in him, I would be saved, completely saved, from past, present, and future sins, my friend. We are not on probation. 
the teacher of the word of God, as we will see as we go through these wonderful epistles, and that we are saved eternally, we are saved completely, we are saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, tucked in God the Father. A salvation that cannot be lost, but yet, brethren, a balance of a salvation that produces in us good works. A salvation that completely changes us from death into life, completely makes us a new creation. This is what the new life in Jesus Christ is all about. He goes on to say, however, in verse 16, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for life everlasting or everlasting life. Paul goes to show what a true conversion, what a true being born again reality and experience is all about. We read about it in Acts chapter 9, how he was a religious Pharisee. We see how religious he is in the third chapter of, of Philippians, how religious he was and how strict to the law he wanted to walk. Even zealous for more than the traditions of his forefathers. But when Christ seized him and showed him his need and his absolute bankruptcy. See, that's what, what religion, mere religion does, brethren, is tries to put a band-aid on your, on your burning and, and uh, ripping conscience. But when Christ comes, he gives us life. He creates us anew. He renews and our spirit makes us alive from the dead. By grace we are saved. And Paul says, These things pattern after me, knowing that a relationship with God is not by performance. It's not by the keeping of any commandments or the law. A relationship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's receiving Christ as the Savior from our sin, the Lord of our life. Jesus said an amazing thing. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And the same apostle that's writing these opening verses in the first chapter to Timothy, if anybody could have found a way to God and a relationship with God and to be right in his sight, he would have as a strict religious Pharisee. And yet he said that all things that I had, religious and, and trying to keep the law and everything that I did, Apart from Christ, I count as rubbish. Now I'm in Christ and have the only righteousness that God requires is by Christ. He goes on to say, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. In Revelation 1.8, when the Apostle John sees the glorified Christ, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. When we come to Christ, we realize that Jesus Christ is the answer to our sin, that he is the answer to our lost condition, that he is the only way to God and he is the only way to live this Christian life. And he produces life everlasting. He ends his epistle by saying, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, 
having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. You know, there's many out there through the years that have started off well, and yet they have strayed and they have accepted other deceiving uh, doctrines, and they've paid attention to something other than the Scriptures and the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at verse 19 again. Having faith and a good conscience, some having rejected, remember how what we talked about before, brethren, is this good teaching, solid teaching, will produce love from a pure heart. It will produce a good conscience, and it will produce a sincere faith. Paul ends this first chapter by saying, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. These same people, brethren, they've been likened to a foolish sailor who throws his compass overboard. They've rejected it. Those who made shipwreck were not true believers. But as William MacDonald would say, they simply did not maintain a tender conscience. They simply did not stand on the Word of God and the Word of God alone. That's why we, we must reject all forms of heresy. We must check everything by the Word of God, brethren. And let me ask, Aunt, just say this before I sign off today. You know, every good teacher of the Word of God, every good pastor, every good communicator, every good teacher, shepherd of the assembly and of the Word will always demand that those who glean from his teaching, that they would go back and search the scriptures to see if what he is saying is so. Paul, who have you known in Acts 17, commended those in Berea, the Bereans, for doing just that. Can you imagine coming and listening to the mighty apostle Paul? But yet, eagerly as it was, as they were to hear him, I believe they went back more eagerly to search the scriptures to see if these things were so. Could it possibly be that God became a man? Could it possibly be that that man lived a perfect, sinless life? Could it possibly be that this one went to the cross and suffered and died for our sin and that God rose him from the dead and that this one is coming back to judge the living and the dead? Could that possibly be true? The Apostle Paul must have communicated these things to the point where the brands eagerly went back to the Scriptures to search it out, to see if these things were so. We see that precedent with the prophets. We see that precedent with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when he went on, for example, the, to the ones going to the uh, Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples. If you see that in Luke 24, how he walked with them and talked with them. Then he chided them and, real, and told them that, that it was he, that all the prophets spoke of him. The scriptures spoke of him. They, he chided them for not understanding. And yet we see a more fuller understanding of, of what he did when he went from Emmaus and he appeared in the upper room. Remember, it's in Luke chapter 24. And in verse 36, it says this, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen the Spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? 
And why do doubts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while it was, they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in the presence. Listen, friends. Jesus rose from the dead in the body he was crucified in. Listen to this. Verse 44, he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, listen, brethren, which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Wow. Do we know the word of God? You know, there are, Sad to say, there are some out there today, many out there, way too many, that call themselves shepherds, that call themselves pastors, that call themselves teachers, and yet they are ignorant of the Word. And more importantly, they are ignorant of the powerful spirit behind the Word. Jesus chided the religious leaders of his day. He said, you're in great error. You do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. So, brethren, if you are sitting under anybody at this time, or listening to somebody that, that can't get a grip on Jesus Christ, his being born of a virgin, his being sinless, his dying completely, his rising from the dead in the body he was crucified in, his ascending to the Father, his promise to come back, his taking his church out, meeting them in the air, bringing them to the Father's house, coming back in righteous indignation to judge the nations, to end Armageddon, to set up his millennial kingdom, to be crowned with the crown of, of and the King of kings and Lord of lords, with the crown and the glory of his father David, sitting upon his throne. These are some of these things that the Bible, the teacher of the Bible, should know, should have firm conviction of. I hope today this finds you as, as wanting to dig deeper into the Word. So next time we get together, we will continue on. We will really study and look at these pastoral epistles as they go on. What does an overseer look like? How does he behave? Is he all spiritual and big in, in church and yet go home and, and ill-treat his wife and, and ignore his kids? A poor example at home. We will go through these, these chapters of these epistles and we'll find out exactly what the man of God should be teaching. As this age gets closer and closer to the end, I believe that Jesus is standing right at the door, waiting for the command of the Father to pierce the heavens and, and meet us in the air, call us up to be with Him. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, brethren, we will be with Him. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to descend from heavens with a shout, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds, to meet Him. We will always be with the Lord. Can you imagine that, brethren? In a moment, twinkling of an eye. They say that word twinkly when I, what Paul says in, in uh, 
1 Corinthians 15. Scientists say that where twinkling an eye cannot even be measured on the point of time. Thousands and thousands of a microsecond is a twinkling of an eye. We will be caught up to meet with him. Are you ready? Are you going to a church? Are you listening to those that are preaching the word of God? That are giving you the word of God and the word of God alone? That are standing on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word? Because there are some brethren that aren't. They're not only false teachers that are out there, but there are teachers that are trying to get your money, trying to get your attention. You know, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll close with this. Read that second, that 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians real close, brethren. We will see that there's an enemy out there, Satan himself, that is launching false teachers, embodying false teachers that they will lie about the truth of God. Is Jesus Christ really coming back, they say? Yes, he's coming back. But I'll end this epistle, or I should say the first chapter of First Timothy. Paul says in verse 20, Of whom are Hamanias and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. As we go on in this epistle, we will see the dangers not only of Wrong understanding, the popular teaching today, for example, is there is more one way. There is more than one way to God. We will see in the preceding chapters how the man of God absolutely rejects that because the Bible says emphatically there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. We'll see how Jesus stood on on the solid eternal Word of God, making him the only way to God the only source of salvation. These things we will be sure when Christ comes back, we will, we will have to give an account, you that are pastors, you that are thinking about teaching the Word of God. Yes, we will be held in strict accountability. James says in James 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing, knowing that we will have a stricter accountability or stricter judgment. So yes, it's a serious matter, but yet I can see of no other higher calling to those that are truly called to teach God's Word. And my brethren, I leave you with that today. I hope this finds you well. I hope this finds you searching your own heart and rejoicing in the fact that if God called you into the ministry, God called you to teach His Word, my brethren, there is no other higher calling than this world can afford. And Father, I thank you for the time that we have. I pray that you remove the rough edges that I put there and that this first chapter, 1 Timothy, would be our introduction into the rest of the epistle, the second epistle of Timothy and Titus, that we'd see what a true man of God should teach and how he should lead the church of God, which is the ground and pillar of the truth. And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen those that are out there and listening today that they would realize that there is no greater calling than to be faithful, to be true to the Word of God. And I ask this for the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Till next time, brethren, farewell. That will bring him to a more and more closer stature with, with Christ as far as intimacy. He is missing the very thing. And that thing is love. God is love.
Verse 8, again. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You know, he says in verse 7 that to, to let us love one another. For love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Or say it again, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. These, I believe in my own life I have not ever found a more satisfactory definition, theological explanation of these verses. They speak for themselves. I can tell all kinds of things. How can I speak other than what the scripture plainly says? Verse 8 again, he who does not love does not know God. For God is love. It says in verse 9, in this, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Think of verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And how did he love us? He sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. One of the greatest verses, I, I think, that could be anywhere to show that God meant what he said and said what he meant is in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to this wonderful declaration. God demonstrates his love towards us. I love that. I want to see action. I don't want to see words. That's one thing I loved about my father. Man, a few words, but everything he did, he demonstrated. And I, I love that. I want that in my own life. Don't tell me something unless you're going to do it. You know, it's not like God somewhere had a big thing in the sky said, God, I love you, God. And then just left the world alone. No, but God demonstrated the fact that how much he loved us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and why we were still, or the King James says, why we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. There is one reason, one reason alone, Jesus Christ came to this earth, and that was to atone for sin, to bring man back to God. That is it. And any other false prophet will tell you anything else. He came to be a good teacher. We talked about this before. He came to be a good teacher, although he was. He came to bring morals, although he did. He came to being a good example. All we've got to do is get back to the golden rule, and Jesus showed us how to do it. That is false doctrine. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and Paul says, I'm chief. The great apostle Paul, oh yeah, the more we know about Christ and the more we study his word, the more we realize what we've been saved from. Remember? I think it's in Luke 12 or Luke, Luke 8, somewhere around there. Remember when the, my favorite story, the prostitute that came into to Jesus, and Jesus was invited, you know, to the religious leader's home for lunch. And, and uh, this lady comes in there and they were all aghast, you know, and, and she was constantly weeping and, and washing his feet. Remember that story? That says it all, folks. They're all, if this man was really prophet, you know who that was. Simon, I got something to say to you. You know, say I'm a teacher because he was important, right? The master wants to talk to me. So he gave him the story about debt. One owed a small debt, the other owed a big debt. And both of them, Master, forgave both of them. Which is going to love them more? Well, obviously, the one that, that you know, that forgave the, the Master full amount of debt. And he says, you know what? You see this? I know who she is. We all do. So Jeff Grant paraphrased. 
She loves much because she is calm and she understands she's been forgiven a boatload of sin. And by that very nature, she loves much. Ah, love. There we go. Back in 1 John 4.10, and again, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And I will end at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Propitiation. Talked about that before. It was a propitiated sacrifice. What that means is that he laid down a sacrifice, the only sacrifice that God will accept on your and mine's behalf. There is only one way to God. There is only one sacrifice that will get us there. And Jesus Christ laid it down and paid it to the full. And God was pleased that Christ died in your place by raising him from the dead. And by believing in that, you are born from above. Your sins are forgiven you. We overcame them by the blood of the Lamb. By that very nature, we are born again by the very love that God had for me by sending Christ in my place. That love is now residing within me. (laughs) How can we tell the difference between one who knows God and one who doesn't. How can we have a surety in our hearts that we're born again? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does the Spirit always do? Point us to Christ. Point us to Christ. Jesus said he loved his own and he loved them to the end. Wow. God always has his remnant, his body. And they will walk in in love. And I believe that there's been so much ridicule of the Christian church uh, in the, the, well, you know, as I've said before, you know, I've been a Christian for a while. Just in the three decades that I've known Christ, I've seen such a, a shift in things. You know, once that was things that were solid, now aren't solid, you know. Uh, churches that used to be known for their uh, their faith and their standing on the rock are now being shifted and now don't teach the things they used to. But that's no cause for alarm for us, for you and I, because we know that God, we are safe in Him. We don't want that Elijah syndrome, you know, where he goes into the cave and he says, man, I, I'm alone that's left. That's now. I have, you know, reserved for me those that have not bowed the knee to anything else. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And I'll end with this statement Jesus said in John 10 10. The thief only comes to kill still, and destroy. But I have come that you might not only have life, but that you might have it abundantly, joyously. The one that knows Christ may sound alarming, may be watching on the wall. You read about, uh, you know, Jeremiah, especially Ezekiel. 
They sent him as a watchman on the wall. And God said, you know, if, if you see that, we see in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verses 33, or chapter 33 and elsewhere, you know, if you see that, if you hear the sound of the trumpet, the warning, and you give faithful warning, and men turn, great. If they don't turn, the blood's on their own hands. But if you hear the warning, or you see the warning, and you hear the trumpet, and you don't warn them, Their blood is on your head. And we don't have time to turn there because I said we were done. But you look in Acts chapter 20, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He says, I've taught, taught you nothing but things that will be proffered you. I am innocent of the blood of all men. And that is what he means there. He's innocent of the blood of all men. He's heard the trumpet. He sees the, the, the thing come, the judgment coming and the warning coming, and he is sound. He pleaded day and night for three years with tears. The whole counsel of God. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And yet, we know Paul was, was well, he wrote Philippians, and some call that the epistle of joy. But, but did that guy have joy? Absolutely. Did Peter have joy? Absolutely. He wrote about the joy inexpressible and full of glory. Did John have joy? Oh, yeah. It was serious. And I, I promise you I will end with this. One of my favorite sayings or writings out of Peter's writing. But the end, this is 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be silly. Hey, and therefore, party with Jesus. No. He says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful unto prayers. But how does he close that? Listen to this next verse. But above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Brethren, there's more to this Christian life than just knowing doctrine. And it's knowing Him. And it's understanding that He is so desirous to make himself known. That's how John opens up his first epistle about fellowship. You have seen and heard and declared to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. He said, these things we write to you that so that your joy may be full. We need to be serious about these times and about what we say and what we do. Great. You want to pray, please? Lord God, we thank you for your word that you've spoken today. We want to be serious and, and know you, Lord. And we ask that you, you reveal yourselves through the, the word. 
And we ask that we you put it in our hearts for us to get in the word every day. Not just at Bible study or at church, Lord, but have fellowship with you every single day. And we ask that you go before us throughout our week, throughout our day, and prepare the way for us, Lord, and give us the will to do your will. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. of this. He's describing a man who's been born again that as he goes to the Oriental bathhouse, and says he takes a bath, he's cleansed from all unrighteousness, and yet when he's walking back to the house, his feet will acquire defilement, and this washes feet. But he himself is clean from all that the law could say or accuse him. And it's beautiful, because that's what we are. And when we have defilement, we confess our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's wise and just because he took the condemnation himself. He fulfilled every bit of the law for you and I. And he also took the condemnation and the judgment for the breaking of that law for you and I. So he's just. Listen to these words. If we confess our sins, our defilement, he is faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Wow. Keep on sinning. Wow. We can't because we've been born of God. Nor do you need to. You know? That's what separates biblical Christianity from all the other religions in the world. And I only say religion as far as Christianity is just by means of comparison. By no means does the Bible talk favorably about religion. Religion is always the outward show. We as baptism and one baptized in the body, we show the world what has already happened and taken place on the inside. That's the meaning of baptism. So when you go baptize in the river wherever you get, you show the world. When I was baptized in Corleone Bay in North Lake Tahoe, I was signifying to the world and to my parents Something has happened to me. I believe this gospel. I believe this word of God. My sins have been, I've been forgiven. That Jesus Christ is now my Lord. I'm not my Lord anymore. I walked to a different drumbeat, and that's to Him. And I've never looked back. And I'm thankful I haven't. Because Paul says that, you know, you can run a race. And if you run it in such a way, there's a, there's a reward, and there's a crown waiting for you. And I want that crown, and I want that reward. I want to see my Lord. I'm expecting to see Him. I want to see Him. I can't wait to see Him. Because I know that when I see Him, I will be with Him forever. And I just want to end these verses, probably for my own sake. Because right now, folks, I think that is a time for comfort. I think that, you know, you can read these verses and you can look at sin so much you can tend to get, uh, feel like you've getting pummeled with things. And it's not the fact that we pummel because somebody's life might not be as righteous as mine. But we admonish these things so that we might see that the Lord desires that we have nothing in the way of Him. You know? We even say it in our wedding vows. You forsake all others, you know? I remember talking... You know, we did Jan and Joe's wedding. You know, you are you willing to forsake all others? Okay. What does that mean? 
Well, there's not too many. There's, there are people out there, but there, most people don't actually commit the physical adultery maybe on their wife, but they sure do in so many other ways. And if that's true in the physical realm of, of relationships down here, well, it's more, it's more uh, abundant with our Christian life. There are so many things. The devil and everything is clamoring for our attention. The flesh wears its ugly head when you don't think it will. The moment you think you've got everything under control, here it comes. Look out. The moment you think you've been having a pretty good day, man, and you've talked to a couple people about Christ, one might have given his life for Christ, and you're relishing in the, in the glow of it, watch out. You know, let's make up our mind now. So when it comes, you're dealing with it. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. That's, that's my wife and I's verse out of uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. But listen to this. I'll leave you with the, with the first six verses of, of the discourse in John 14. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many rooms, or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. He's going and preparing a place for you, for me, individually. You know, as a corporate part of his body, he loves you. He's going to tailor this for you. I believe this with all my heart. Because my God's like that. He loves us individually. He's tailoring a place for you, exactly what you want. You know, people down here, they want to find the perfect house. And, you know, I mean, we've been selling our house for almost a year now. I know. I mean, for all kinds of things. Oh, you know, it's great, but we want this. Oh, it's great. He is tailoring something, I believe, with all my heart, that is going to just dazzle us for eternity. I can't wait to see that. He loves you. And, and we flirt with sin? In my Father's house, are, again, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you with him. And we're going we're gonna to forsake that in sin? We're going to forsake that and, and entertain uh, pride and, and, and everything else? Is it tough? Hey, did anybody say the Christian life was going to be easy? Paul says, I die daily. So he's going to go prepare this fantastic place. You know, I don't have to worry about, well, hey, you know, is it going to be something I want? It will be exactly what I was designed to love and to dwell in, because that's who God is. And if I go and prepare a place for you again, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know, and where I, I go, you know, the way you know. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where the way you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus takes it from the material to the spiritual. Life. Life is not this. Life is Him. We don't know where you're going to go. Leave us a map or something. You know, let us know. 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Wow. Lord, um, the Lord has shown me the last, well, when I really understood where we're going, and the time is short for, for us here, but I love you guys, and that's my heart. That's the heart of the Lord, and I, I, I would be you know, I used to tell my sons, if you don't tell somebody the truth, you're not really being a truthful friend to them. And there's so much more to this life than just what meets the eye. You know, they say that those that are suffer great loss, suffer problems in their life. I mean, uh, we've all had tragedy, death, uh, whatever. That those who, who, who stick to the Lord and allow Him to take them through them find an intimacy with Him that most people don't. But we also understand the Bible talks about those that give up their life, that give up what they, they don't need, and they grab what they cannot afford to lose. There's an intimacy and a joy there that the Bible talks about that few nowadays know about, few as far as the masses go. And that's what we want. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the word. And Lord, but I, I thank you for the Lord of the word. It so eloquently points to who you are and your character. Father, I pray that if there are those listening that have not surrendered everything, intellect, pride, um, whatever to you, that they would do it. Because it, nobody needs to be taught. It's the Spirit that teaches us to abide in Christ. I pray that would be their lot, because what is it worth if man gains a whole world and that you know, loses? What is a gain? If we have 20 more days left and we, we live it half-heartedly, I pray that we would... We would we would consider and accept nothing less than excellency. Nothing less than the Word of God operating in our life. Again, I thank you for this day, and I pray that you would go with us as we go, and give us joy that our joy might be full. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.